As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. I, um, I'd been involved in some shooting incidents. I'd, uh, I'd been in a gunfight. Um, two of us uh, killed the offender. Then some other things happened. Darkness was starting to come out. I was enjoying the opportunity too much to kill somebody.
That's Keith Banks, and I promise he's a really nice guy. He's actually a bona fide hero. He has not one but two bravery awards. In fact, Keith has risked his life in the name of law and order more times than you and I have had hot dinners. And he's even survived a stint in the drug squad in Queensland during one of its darkest periods of corruption. It's all in his excellent book called Drugs, Guns and Lies. And he joins us this week to talk about some of it. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. We'll hear shortly about his days as an undercover cop in the 70s when an international drug smuggling syndicate known as Mr Asia was moving huge amounts of heroin into Australia and New Zealand from Southeast Asia. They were a brutal crew, famous for disappearing people at the drop of a hat. But first, we need to know a bit about the young man from country Queensland who arrived at the police academy fresh-faced and rosy-cheeked. I had no idea, Michelle. I, I, I was a classic knight on a white charger young kid who thought he could change the world, yeah? And I remember I, I remember being on the train going to Brisbane, and I grew up in the bush, right? And so it's the first two things I noticed were that there were buildings taller than two stories, mm-hmm. and there were so many girls. <laughs> and I went, wow. <laughs> so I walked into the academy, and I got there on a Sunday, was taken in, shown briefly around the academy, and shown to my room. And the first question I asked was, well, am I sharing with anybody? And, and whoever it was was uh, guiding me around and said, no, this is, this is all yours. I'd not had my own space forever. You know, so that was a huge lifestyle change for me, and I was so happy about that. Then the Monday morning we were standing to attention outside our rooms because it was a very paramilitary mm-hmm. area. The most fearsome individual I'd ever seen in my life came storming through to do an inspection and screamed and yelled and made people do push-ups. And uh, and Tom, Sergeant Malloy, anybody of my era would remember him. He'd been in the Royal Navy in World War II. He'd been sunk twice. <laughs> yeah. And he was just a fearsome individual. Mm. Essentially, his approach was, if you couldn't put up with my shit, how are you going to face what you're going to see as a, as a police officer out in the real world? But I didn't know that for two years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he, yeah, he was, he was, uh, I loved him, but gee whiz, he was um, interesting. You were, you were kind of born to it, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. I, I lived and breathed it. It was like a family mm. that I hadn't had, I guess, and uh, and I embraced it wholeheartedly. I hated being off duty. <laughs> I just couldn't wait to get back to work, mm. you know, in case I missed out on something or in case there was something I could do. When did you finally get into undercover policing? How do you, how do you do that? Uh, these days, it's completely different. There's application and psychological testing, etc. In those days, when I realised that undercovers actually existed because I didn't know they were there, I kind of thought that the Queensland Police wouldn't be <laughs> that uh, innovative, I suppose. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I was on patrol one night. We had a shots fired call, and I'd been in the job about three years, and I, and I thirsted for adventure and all that stuff. So any time an urgent call came up like that, you'd have... Every police car within the vicinity responding. You're in Brisbane? 
In Brisbane, yeah, in the middle of the city, mm. yeah. And uh, so we turned up. There's a bunch of scruffy guys and a couple of guys handcuffed on the ground, etc. Um, and we very quickly realised they were police. And one of the drug squad guys came over and said, look, take our undercover, throw him in the car, make it look good, take him back to the office. We just need to make sure these guys don't know who he is. And I remember thinking, take out what? And I looked over and here's this guy sitting there with hair down past his shoulders and a dirty old T-shirt cuffed. I don't know, the classic five-day growth. And I got him in the car and, and he said, uh, G'day, Banksy, how are you going? I went, holy Jesus. There was a, a, a cadet, I think, who was one or two years below me. And that's when I went, okay, what the hell's all this about? Yeah. So that became my goal. And, again, the kind of guy I was <laughs> must have been bloody boring because <laughs> I didn't drink, I didn't smoke cigarettes, I did uh, Taekwondo four or five days a week. I was this clean living, but I wanted to be one of them because I thought that was that was a pretty cool thing to do to be actively working against the drug trade. And in those days, we'd policing in the country lost the battle against heroin, or lost the war against heroin in the late 70s with the Mr. Asia Syndicate, Terence John Clark, and, and just, just incredibly um, amazing amounts of heroin that were just being pumped into uh, into Australia, and uh, and I wanted to do something about it. So to answer your question, there was no process. I, I simply went to a very senior policeman who quite liked my style for some reason and uh, got him aside and said, look, boss, I'm interested in being an undercover agent, and he'd been a detective and uh, had a chat to me. He said, you sure about this? I said, yep, yep, yep. I had all that great, wonderful Serpico almost uh, imagery. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he got me an interview and I had an interview with the uh, the boss at the drug squad and, um, yeah, he reached out about three or four days later and said, you're in. Did you have to learn to pretend to be all of those things you weren't? How do you fit in? Because now I'm getting imagery from The Simpsons of you going, <laughs> hello, fellow young people, you know, like <laughs> you don't drink, you don't smoke, you're a clean living oh, martial yeah. artist. Yeah. And you have to now pretend to be a drug-using dirtbag. Yeah. How do you do that? Well, no training. Um, <laughs> we were simply, and and all of us, I'm just trying to think our ages. I was 21 and I think Gando would have been 22. The other guys were, yeah, 22 to 24 maybe. I mean, you could have been murdered so easily. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there was there was no. It's not like the movies. There was no one following our every move. We were just out in the world yeah. doing our thing. Um, so the first job I did, I had uh, a couple of weeks with one of the more senior guys, and I just learned everything I could from him and just shut the hell up and, and soaked it all in. So I remember we were in a pub one night and playing pool with some dealers, and one of them said to Pete, "Oh, your mate doesn't say much," <laughs> and uh, and he says, "Because you've got nothing to say." What's your problem? And, and I just looked at this guy and he had such an air of menace about him. And I thought, oh, geez, I want, I want that's what you need to be. You need to be an alpha male or the big dog, even though, you know, I was lucky to be five foot eight, about 65 kilos then. But uh, to develop that air of confidence, and it just came with experience. As far as the drinking was concerned, I met an informant uh, who I actually later worked with who was who was a great bloke. He was informing not because he was working off a criminal record or because of anything else other than he hated drugs. And he looked, oh, jeez, he was a big, mean guy. 
when in met him at a pub, blah, 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 I introduced myself and he said, to turn to the barman and said, two beers. And I said, I don't drink, I don't drink, mate. But he turned to me and said, what well, you fucking do now? <laughs> and I went, um, okay. <laughs> and did you, did you start drinking? Did you start? Yeah, oh, yeah. 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 Two, two years after I joined, I was a different guy. I was, um, I was smoking weed with the best of them, drinking, out drinking people and just fell right into that lifestyle. Mm. Um, and that was the thing about Undercover then, and it's one of the main reasons I wrote the book. I, I wanted two things, actually, catharsis, and also to tell the story about the reality of those days and how it changed all of us. I, I came through okay, relatively unscathed, just a completely different lifestyle. Mm. But I had a friend of mine who became addicted to heroin within 12 months, he was in a job where he had to shoot up and then, yeah, developed a, a really raging habit. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's no joke. No, no. But but um, it seems to me that working in the drug squad by itself is mm. a really treacherous job. We talk a lot on our show and we've met former drug squad detectives who have mm. now got disgraced attached to their names. Yes. It's a treacherous situation to work in. Did you find that? How I need to ask you, was there corruption in the drug squad yeah. when you joined? Absolutely, and, and I'm, I'm very open about it. I've never met a bloke from the drug squad who says there wasn't. I'm talking in any state of Australia. Because it was about opportunity, and if you didn't have a firm and strong moral compass, and, and thank God that's how I was raised. Even though I was raised in, in a pretty challenging childhood, my mother always taught me to be as honest as I, as I could, yeah, and to look after others and, and that sort of thing. And, 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 again, that sounds very almost cliché, but that's what I was. I, uh, it never even entered my mind to, to steal money or to sell drugs. Never even crossed it. But in the drug squad in those days, there were almost half of the office that were bent and the other half was straight. But knew about it? Yeah, but, you know, that. yeah, yeah. Now, the problem is, was, in those days, we had an internal investigations area, so internal affairs, but internal investigations were staffed by detective inspectors who were rotated through the area, which looks good on the surface. The problem was you never knew who was in there and what their allegiances were. I spoke to uh, a particular sergeant I trusted, and I said, mate, this is what's happened should I tell someone? His words were to the effect of an almost this accurate. He said, mate, if you do, you may come home one night and there'll be an ounce of heroin in your bedside drawer or your garage will be full of stolen televisions and there'll be someone there with a warrant waiting for you to come home. And I remember thinking, shit, wow, okay. So a couple of instances, there, there, are, there are many of them, but a couple of them, an undercover colleague and I snuck into the office one night. We'd always sneak in. We, this is how strange it was, even though we were deep undercover. We still had to go to the drug squad office at CIB headquarters from time to time to get paperwork, drop it off, drop off exhibits, whatever. Anyway, Larry and I walked in there one night under the cover of darkness and uh, snuck in through the back door, walked into the office, and there were two detectives with what looked like at least two pounds of, of dough, at least, and bagging it up into deal bags. In the office? In the office, yeah. And we looked at each other and it was almost, okay, avoid eye contact, back away. They looked at us 
in the eye and just went back to doing what they were doing. So I just sort of turned to Larry and said, okay, mate, let's, uh, let's do this another time. Then a couple of years later, I'd finished my undercover duty and I ended up in the drug squad. Anyway, Larry and I, we were sitting in the police club uh, one night and the police club was a licensed bar that was actually on top of police CIB headquarters. Great place. I bet. Interesting location. <laughs> <laughs> and the, you could almost write a book about what happened in there. And uh, and we're sitting there having a couple of beers one night and just, you know, having a chat to each other because he and I were he and I were very tight. And uh, the same two detectives and another one walked up to us and you know, a bit of a semicircle around us and just, you know, did the usual pleasantries. And then uh, then one of them said, Listen, now you two are pretty staunch. Staunch meaning loyal and won't give anyone up. Staunch in my world was standing by your mate when uh, when trouble's about to happen, so completely different definitions. Um, but anyway, uh, so the conversation was, listen, next time you boys are out on a job, we've um, we've got a fair bit of powder that we need to move. Um, you sell it for us, we split the profits, and, uh, and we'll make sure um, no one finds out about it. It was that blatant, and they're just two examples, and and it horrified me. And, and what also horrified me was the powerlessness to do anything about it. And and when you say powerless, did you say yes or no to that? And what were the consequences of? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, absolutely no. And, but you had to be very careful how you did that as well. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. And I said, I said, look, Cast, uh, not worth the risk, boys. And uh, and it was essentially, listen, we're the drug squad. We can make sure no one searches. It'll be fine. I went, nah, look, no, not not really for us. It was as if then all the shutters came down and those those three only spoke to me after that when they really had to and even then it was very clipped, short sentences because... Not one of us. You're not one of us, yeah, yeah. And it's, I've used the analogy over the years of like water finding its own level. So those of us who were straight would actually go and gravitate to that cohort that were and... Yeah and move away from the others. But having said that, I really need to emphasise that in my 20 years, the absolute overwhelming majority of police that I had the the pleasure and the honour to work with, men and women, were like me. They were there for the right reasons, uh, protect people from the predators, and that's what policing boils down to. But it was just in Queensland in those days, a particular cohort that, that tarnished what we did, the problem was the cohort, as small as they were, were influential. Yeah, they were senior. They had the ear of senior police. You know, you didn't necessarily, it's like the Roger Rogerson uh, environment, I guess, where you don't have to be a senior cop to be running the show. Yeah. In fact, it's probably better if you're not, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Less public attention. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Is it possible to be both, though? Is it possible to be doing a great job policing and be bent? I wonder if people could be both. Could be both at separate times in their career or even be both at once. Yeah. I mean, Rogerson's a great example. He was an incredibly effective detective. Huh. That's alliteration. Um, yep. <laughs> but but he, he was. He was renowned. He was a crook catcher and a crime solver and, and, and brilliant then went to the dark side, or maybe he was like that from the start, who knows. Yeah, some of these guys, and I say guys again because I never met a female police officer who was a crook, and that's the way I look at them. Um, so they actually, they had, 
they had great investigative skills. They were pretty good at their job, but they put a lot of effort into making illicit money. And if they'd actually put that effort into being cops, then that would have been a brilliant result. And, and I think, see, what happens is it's called noble cause corruption. So, so people start with um, taking money from, I don't know, an SP bookmaker because it doesn't hurt anybody. Then they, they rationalise taking money from prostitution because, you know, prostitution is there anyway. Yeah, you know. Then they rationalise stealing money from an armed robber because the armed robber would only use it to fund a barrister anyway. Then they rationalise stealing money from drug dealers because, hey, the courts aren't going to give them anything, so it's our way of finding them. And then it just goes on and on and on. And and for me, there's no uh, that is black and white. There is no shade of, of corruption in my view. When you're an undercover officer, you are consorting with criminals as part of your job. Sure. Is it hard sometimes to find that, that line? And do you make friendships? Do you genuinely start to have affection for people that you have to, you know, nick? Yeah, I, um, I, I've met some good people. Um, who just just happen to be drug dealers. <laughs> I've met drug dealers who I like a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there's the problem. That's the thing, Michelle, that every undercover I've spoken to, um, you know, and, and we, we actually talk a lot, even the younger guys, because I have a bit of a um, reputation, which is a good thing, a good reputation, I should say. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I still network heavily and, and I talk to the guys and girls in Queensland a lot and, um the, the overwhelming feedback from every UC that I've ever had this conversation with, it was the hardest thing to betray someone, to actually start off knowing that you were going to betray them ultimately and then actually engaging with them. So, you know, it's and, and particularly as young kids, so you, you're actually you're, you're living two levels at once. Mm-hmm. You know in the back of your mind that you're a cop and you're there to set up drug deals and ultimately have them punished for dealing heroin, coke, dope, whatever. But at the same time, you're sitting having a beer in a pub and chatting and laughing about stuff. Mm. And, yeah, there were some people that I really struggled with the guilt and the remorse over. So as a cohort, the, the four or five of us who were undercovers at the time, we'd all get together and socialise ourselves because we could actually be ourselves. Yeah. And we all had a same, we all had a similar story, you know. Um, yeah. And, and I'm very open about the fact that, um, yeah, we, you know, we smoked a lot of weed. It's, it's impossible, was impossible. Don't know how undercovers work now and I don't need to know. Um, but in those days it was impossible to set up a, a five or a ten-pound deal of, uh, of, of prime heads and not actually sample the product with the person you were doing business with. And then if we go back to me who didn't drink, <laughs> within six months I was, uh, you know, I was pouring cones with people and uh, and then I thought, gee, this stuff isn't bad. So, <laughs> so you know, so, yeah, so recreational use was, was pretty rampant. It was formally frowned on but informally condoned. Well, you can't really do your work without it, no. without, without having those social cones with people when you're doing the deal. Well, that's, that's how I started, though, um, because my the way I rationalised it was it's okay to smoke when I'm working. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then, In fact, I have to. So. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And then one of my friends mm-hmm. uh, who's sadly, um, sadly no longer with us, who was just a great guy, and I was at his place working on a motorbike with him one afternoon because, because again, the whole world changed. We could just do what we wanted. You know, there was no clocking in, clocking off. 
So I rode my bike over to his place and we're chatting away and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you want a swift? And I said, oh, I'm not working, mate. <laughs> <laughs> That's what he did. <laughs> That's great. Not off the clock. Don't be gross. <laughs> so, yeah, that was uh, – and, yeah, and then, um, then it, look, recreationally we, we enjoyed each other's company because we could just be ourselves. So you could get stoned, you could just laugh and relax and go, thank God, I'm not worried about someone pulling out a shoddy or, a, or a, you know, giving oh. me a belting or something. Um, yeah. Yeah. Did you ever get close, do you think, to being sprung? Were you ever sprung? Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. I've, I've been recognised by people who knew me. As a copper? Yeah. I, I was in a bar in, in Cairns one night, a disco actually, for those of you young people out there. It was a place we used to go to. And uh, <laughs> and I'd grown a big beard and and so on. And the barman who came over to serve me actually owned the place. And, uh, and I'd last seen him in year eight in the bush. So this was, oh, man, this was ten years later. And I thought I was, I recognised him immediately. And, uh, and he came over and said, yep. Yeah. And he looked at me and said, Keith. No. And it wasn't my name at that point in time. And, um, uh. and I was with a pretty violent guy. And so you just need to be on the front foot. So I hit him with a, a face full of expletives and uh, just told him to do his so-and-so job and get me a drink. I don't know who the hell you're there, blah, blah, blah. I just gave it to him. And I turned and looked at this this guy I was with, and I don't know whether you've ever looked into, and it becomes obvious why he had eyes like this, but I don't know whether you've looked into someone's eyes and just seen complete evil and a lack of soul, and this guy was just giving me that look. And I thought, Jesus. And I had no idea of his background at that time. In the book, you'll see why. And um, so I went back to Brett the next day and uh, essentially threw myself on his mercy and said, look, mate, this is what I'm doing. And I felt so bad. This is the guy in the bar. Yeah, the guy who in the disco, yeah. And, uh, in the you bar. told him? Yeah. Oh, wow. So because I thought I thought this through and thought, okay, I, what I don't want or need is him saying, I'm sure that's guy I went to school with and he's using a different name and all of a sudden that's friends. Um, yeah, because Kansas is a small town now. Yeah. So at that time, yeah, yeah. it would have got around pretty oh, quick. Oh, everyone knew everybody, yeah. Um, so I went back in and, uh, and said, look, this is what I'm doing. Sorry about last night. However, you need not to tell anybody, etc." And he actually said, he said, well, look, if you, you want to bring this guy back in, maybe tomorrow night, I'll come over and apologise and I'll give you free drinks and, you know, make him feel special. I went, oh, what a brilliant idea. So we did exactly that. Then this guy thought he was the king of the kids because clearly everyone was so scared of him that that had to happen, yeah, which cemented um, cemented two things. It, it took away any doubt he had about my cover and also uh, diverted his attention from that. Yeah, so, and that's the sort of stuff you needed to do. Feeding people's egos never hurts, does it? Yeah, exactly right. On the contrary, though, not long after I started, I was in a particular pub in Brisbane, the Royal Exchange Hotel, which in those days was the hub of drug dealing and outlaw motorcycle gangs and all of those interesting, wonderful people and university students who were sort of living on the, the excitement of it all. And it was just, yeah, it was a, a snake pit. And uh, I'd been scoring a fair bit of quite, quite God, I think it was dope, it was speed, um, some hash, the usual, um, from this guy who I met on a Friday night in the uh, right in the middle of the beer garden, which was packed, and something wasn't right. You just get a vibe. And, uh, and I sat down there and, again, 
just to reinforce it. There was no, but there was no one watching our backs. We, you know, I could have been on the floor with a fractured skull and no one would have known for a week. So I sat down and cut a long story short, we had a chat and it wasn't right. And I said, uh, so are we talking business or what? And um, he then uh, he didn't let me know that he'd done a check on my number plates and they were false. And in that moment, I thought, oh, this isn't going to be good. So the only thing I could do was I just leapt to my feet, yelled at him, called him a dog, which is underworld parlance for informer, and uh, and really changed the whole dynamic around all the time, massively pumped with adrenaline and thinking I'm going to get really badly hurt here and I'll take two or three of them with me as best I can. So I planned a glass one and, you know, and just all of that violence that, that comes into your mind, which, again, is interesting because 12 months or six months before I'd been a normal street cop who never would have thought of that. So um, that bought me some time. I rang him the next day and had a, an informal conversation <laughs> that never became part of the rang sheet, and, um, and he changed his approach, I think, because of that reaction. But, but if I hadn't had that, uh, and I don't know why I thought of it there and then, but if I hadn't had that reaction then it may have gone badly. I thought it was a great idea to call him a dog because how could he run your plates if not through a copper? That's right. He had a contact in the main roads department then that he told me later. Right. Um, but that was the first thing I thought. Yeah, me too. Yeah. So you should have been a nut. Yeah. Oh, no, no. I'd be terrible. <laughs> I'm too honest. And, I, and, and the other thing is if I was stoned, I would blurt something out, I swear to God. How do you not, you know, oh. that's, that's when you're uh, inebriated on substances – are you worried about yep. that? Are you worried? And feeling guilty, by the way. You're stoned. Yeah. You're yeah, guilty because yeah. you're sitting with a dealer who you actually quite like and you're thinking, yeah. oh, no, we're going to raid you on Thursday. I feel so bad. Yeah. Were you ever worried about that? Yeah, I was. So I talk about music a lot and anyone who knows me well knows I love music and and I'd just I'd have a, uh, a couple of cones or a, or a blunt or something and I'd just, you know, you know, it's like, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I'd just start talking about music because that was my way of focusing my attention and I'd always make sure I hadn't smoked way too much, which is a fine line, but that was my way. Mm. One of the other guys said uh, he'd actually have a little pebble, believe it or not, in his pocket. So he'd, when he'd have a joint or a cone, he'd just slip it under his tongue huh. and push down on it with his tongue to actually distract his attention, which was quite an interesting thing. Because you do tend to focus on something, you know? You do, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that's um, clever. All of that stuff was just like folklore that we swapped between each other and uh, and that's why recreationally when we could all get together and we were rarely in town at the same time because mm. we were sent all over the state and sometimes over the border. But when we could get together, yeah, it was uh, it was on. <laughs> How do you transition out of that lifestyle? How do you, I'm thinking about all the, again, the movies, you know, I'm thinking about what's yeah. that Johnny Depp movie? Johnny Brasco. Johnny Brasco. And yeah. there's the scene where he and his wife are in counselling and she's mm. like, do you hear the way he's talking? I married a college man. That's that great moment. And I keep mm. thinking about that as you're talking about how you changed as a person. And how do you transition out of that life then? You've changed so much as a person and then you what, you get promoted and suddenly you move well, out of that lifestyle? Well, no. See, that, that was the thing. Undercover undercover agents weren't really appreciated for what they did. We, we were... Because we you can't means. tell anyone. Well, yeah, true. We, but, but in turn, like in the police force, we're a means to an end. So um, literally one day I bought, I think it was about a half an ounce of heroin, 
in a, in a buy bust. And the very next day, I was in a hair, my hairdresser's uh, getting all my hair cut off and putting a uniform on and going to work. There was no transition period. It was just, oh, well, good job, off you go. So, again, our little support network, that's how we sort of transitioned back. Um, and it was really up to you. You either made the transition or you bugged off. So, yeah, the, the support was zero. What I did experience, though, was the vast amount of those good cops actually knew that we were struggling with it and they looked after us. Yeah. Yeah. So one great example of that was I, I um, so literally the next day turned up in uniform back to mobile patrols, which I loved before I left, and my hair was, you know, I couldn't get it all cut off, damn it. Um, no. So it was, still, it was still longer than regulation, and I was with a bunch of trainees being addressed by the boss and, and the boss who was this great man. He uh, he looked around all of us and uh, and I'd never met him before and he said yeah blah 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 welcome and oh, look we have a uh, hair policy here and he looked at me and said that hair has to go I said oh, I've just got it all cut off <laughs> so you know there I was hang dog despondent um, and in the muster room or something and he came and found me about ten minutes later and said Keith Banks and I said yeah boss and he said oh mate I didn't realise who you were welcome bud good job and. Don't worry about that hair shit. That's only for trainees. Oh, nice. Oh, wow. Cool. And that just those little touches actually made you feel appreciated, as strange as that sounds. Thank you to our dear patrons, Kate Seavers, Catherine Stinchcomb, Amelia, Susan Nichols, Bianca Virgo, Cheryl Monday, that's my new favourite name, Paul Downs, and Cindy Reese mitchell To become a patron, just go to patreon.com forward slash pod. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. We're doing another Australian true crime live stream event on Saturday, July 18. You melted down the server last time, but don't worry, we're very prepared this time around because our guests are dynamite. 
journalist Andrew Rule will be talking about his experience helping to put together the classic true crime book, Chopper from the Inside. Andrew started receiving long letters from Chopper Reed in the late 1980s while Chopper was still in Pentridge Prison, and together they launched Chopper's career as an author. He went on to release 15 books and one album. So what was it like making Chopper Reed a media superstar? Andrew Rule will tell us all about it. Our other guest is Julia Robson, who you probably know as the brilliant private investigator who is currently chasing Charlie. She'll be telling us stories from behind the scenes of the podcast and answering your questions. You can find all the booking details in the show notes to this episode and on our Facebook page. Coming up on Australian True Crime, Keith starts accumulating awards. But first... Things are getting a little dark for Keith, as we know they sadly do for many frontline responders. He has a theory as to how that might begin. Police are isolationists by their very nature. There's an us and them thing, and that's just the way it is. I mean, you can put all organisational, cultural training in there. It's it's not going to change because police see the, the nether world. And, and they see victims and they see predators and they see horrible things that you should never see. Within that policing area, undercover police are isolationist because the average cop doesn't understand what they do. And, and again, that's a pretty common thread. And undercovers tend to gravitate together. And they still do now, even all these years later. So the, uh, I guess the lack of appreciation, recognition, whatever, and it's not about medals or, or certificates. It was about, hey, guys, you did a good job. When that didn't happen, there was damage as a result. Yeah, for sure. I mean, within the organisation, at least, you needed that acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah. Did you marry? Yeah, I'm, I'm married now. My wife was in the Victoria Police when I met her. She was in the drug squad. It was um, years after undercover, but I'd gone back to a covert life. What does that mean? Well, I, well, I was in um, in surveillance and intelligence. So oh. I'd, I'd, I'd gone back to, I'd, I'd gone through the tactical world, so special operations group type work. Yeah, I preferred covert. So I was back in an intelligence area. So you could grow your hair again, treasure and all that stuff, which is quite important to me, clearly. Yeah. But uh, but I was in charge of the the what was called the wing clipping desk, which was the strategic intel gathering on outlaw motorcycle gangs. So I was part of a national task force with that, was in Melbourne and uh, and met her when she was on an operation involving the Hells Angels at uh, the Broadford rock concert they used to run. Wow. Some could unkindly say to launder their drug money. I would never say such a thing. No. <laughs> Gosh, so you two really like getting involved in the hurly-burly. Yeah, well, you know, it's pretty boring riding traffic tickets. How did you make the decision to leave policing behind? Because you just stepped up, stepped up, stepped up in terms of every. it seems like every time you were promoted, you stayed very operational. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, look, I, I was well in the throes of PTSD without realising it. I'd been involved in some shooting incidents. I'd, uh, I'd been involved in a job where one of my colleagues was killed uh, in a gunfight, um, another one badly wounded, and, uh, and two of us uh, killed the offender. Then some other things happened, and but that one particularly, that, that just sent me on a path of, of darkness and depression and, and what I now know is PTSD. We talk about it a lot because we have a regular guest on our show called Narelle Fraser, and that's her big thing. Do you know Narelle? No, my wife does. Great. Um, yeah, so I've, I've heard, uh, heard Narelle a couple of things with Narelle. Yeah, so you know that she had to retire so early because of PTSD. She didn't know anything about it. She certainly didn't know she had it. Very familiar. 
So, as so many people say that, right? Mm-hmm. And for her, I don't know if you've heard this story or not, but she literally was sitting in a coffee shop in the city having a coffee and looked up and these people were saying, Narelle, what are you doing? She was supposed to be in the court across the street assisting a sexual assault survivor give evidence. She snapped. Mm. She walked Mm. out of the court because she she just snapped and that was her moment of wake up and also of other people realizing there's something wrong with Narelle. Was there a moment for you like that? Probably two things. I uh, after Peter was killed in, in 1987 in that in that gun battle, that was in in Brisbane in Walter Street, Virginia. It was the Queensland number number one most wanted armed robber, violent man, Paul Mullen. Yeah, he'd been doing a number of, uh, of armed robberies. He was violent. He fired shots. He was just a you know, piece of work. We executed a arrest warrant on his house because it was the only option we had um, to do. And he opened fire through a door, and it was just mayhem. He used a two to three rifle at close range. Peter died. Peter was hit five times. He died that morning in hospital. I was with him. Uh, I was with him when he was lying in a corner screaming and I uh, was trying to comfort him. And uh, this is after we killed Mullen. Yeah, that, that just, that, that destroyed me um, without, I had survivor guilt for 25 years. Um, I was just thinking that, I mean, that could have been you. That could have been anyone. He's just firing through a door. Yeah, and it was very close range and, and it was just a, an intense gun battle for, I, I don't know, 10, 12, 15 seconds, who the hell knows, in the dark and, and so on. About two months after that, I was sitting at home. I drank way too much. I was self-medicating a massive amount and uh, and I was living with a, a young lady who'd gone to work um, and in that moment of just darkness, and I understand how people suicide because you don't think clearly. I, um, I actually had my, my service issue weapon because we'd been told that there was a contract on us for, for shooting the crook, so we were given permission to carry our weapons off duty. Anyway, sitting there, and I just had this, I had this thought of if I wasn't here anymore, it would all go away, and, uh, and I literally loaded it chambered around, put the weapon in my mouth and um, and only had, you know, one pound of trigger pressure. And what stopped me was not fear of death. What stopped me was I flashed back to a suicide I'd attended as a uniformed cop where a guy had shot himself and there was brain matter all over the wall and blood and, and so on. And I remember thinking, gee, that wouldn't be good for her to come home and find. Yeah. And then, then I came back to... I guess, normal thinking, and thought, Jesus. So I took this thing out of my mouth, unloaded it, stripped it down and hid it around the house um, and then went to bed and woke up the next morning, usual hangover because I was just drinking every day and then mm. thought, hmm, where did I put it? So I, I didn't tell her. I told her sometime later. But but that's that's just where I was. Now, not knowing, I just thought I just maybe was a bit sad Um and then a bit too pissed, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. but I, I, you know, I think back, I was so angry, I had to drink, I um, had all of these symptoms that I know now uh, PTSD. The MLC building in the center of Brisbane, 1992, and it was again in any units call, uh, shots fired, so raced into there and and uh, jumped out of the car. I was, I was in. 
uh, jeans. I had longer hair, of course, as I was doing a bit of a uh, semi-covert thing looking after an undercover agent. But any any excuse I had not to look like a copper, I did. And um, so essentially got a quick cordon going and raced up the stairs and, uh, and was very quickly told there was a male inside the foyer. Um, I thought he would be... I had visions of the Hoddle Street Massacre, always did when there were shots fired in those days because guns were freely available. And um, so I went there with the intention of shooting him if I had to and uh, essentially still don't know why. I popped my head around the corner and saw this guy sitting on the floor with a rifle and a box, a cargo box with something in it across his lap and army webbing that, you know, army guys carry with all their equipment in and uh, I just started talking to him and he said, why don't you come in a bit closer and have a talk to me? So I don't know why. I turned and gave my firearm to the uniform guy and took a couple of steps in. And then when I got there, I realised it was probably not the smartest thing to do <laughs> because uh, I said, oh, you know, what do you got in the box? And, uh, and he reached into the box and pulled out a half a stick of jelly knife and tossed it at me and I caught it and it was sweating and unstable and I thought, oh, Jesus, what have you done now? So essentially I, I spent an hour and a half with him and talked him out of uh, killing himself, me, blowing up the building, etc. He'd been a Viet- He was a Vietnam veteran and, and I saw in him uh, similar things that I was feeling and thinking about without realising what it was, I guess. And um, and I know about <clears throat> my favourite part of this story. Well, there are many because there are some funny parts. I'd take another hour to tell you that story. But um, but towards the end, of I talked him into giving up his rifle. I exchanged that for a pot of beer, which is against the rules. Um, I like breaking rules. And um, <clears throat> got to the point where I thought, okay, he had, wait, he had 16 sticks of gel at night with three electronic detonators wired, ready to go with a battery, which just would have brought, you know, had bits of us raining all over South Bank, the other side of the Brisbane River. And um, and I thought, okay, I've almost got him. And then he reached into the webbing and pulled out a hand grenade and pulled out the pin. And I uh, thought, oh, man. Again, I only know these from the movies. How long do you really have when a pin's pulled out of a hand grenade? Oh, great. See, I, 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 yeah, I keep forgetting that people don't, <laughs> probably aren't experienced in this stuff. No. So a hand grenade actually has what a uh, firing lever, I think it's called. So it's a little, little lever on the side of it. So when you pull out the pin... It's okay as long as you keep the lever depressed. Then in the, in the movies they throw them. Yep, and then the lever the lever pops away and you've got about three to five seconds, I reckon, before it goes boom. But if you're sitting there holding it, it's... It's, it's okay, yeah, yeah. Ish. <laughs> Took me about 30 seconds to persuade him to put the pin back in and let me mm. tell you, 30 seconds can be a long time. <laughs> if you're relying on this guy to just yeah. not let it go. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so that was that was the second um, bravery decoration. Some could argue it should have been an insanity decoration, but it was one of the proudest things I did actually because I went there with the intention of taking him out and ended up saving his life. And, that yeah, that was really comforting because um, I'd been in shootings and, and, and my darkness was starting to come out. I was enjoying the opportunity too much to kill somebody. And that's quite a confronting thing to say. When that happened, it, it really triggered something in me to, to reinforce that I'm actually a nice guy and I wasn't turning into something that I shouldn't have been. Mm, because you had this golden opportunity to shoot somebody and everyone would have thanked you for it. Would have been fine, yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. You would have got a medal anyway. 
That's one way to look at it. Well, I mean, <laughs> you took me here. You brought me here to this place of saying, yeah, yeah. yeah let's get to a place where we're enjoying the opportunities. Mm. Oh, I'm very open about that. It was quite dark, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. is. But um, I, I really appreciate you being honest about that. That's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's part of the message, again, Michelle, what I want, I'm hoping that writing a book and having it published can actually maybe prompt an opportunity to get a conversation going about about the real impacts of policing on people. Yep. And, and I think PTSD, no, wrong, I know PTSD is not being addressed well with police or first responders, but particularly cops. Cops are killing themselves a lot. And it's it's not being publicised. It's not being the data is not being collected or collated. Graham Ashton, who is the current chief commissioner here in Melbourne, has started doing something which I love. But the reality is, you've got men and women, human beings, doing a job that not many would want to do, and copying it from everywhere. But more importantly, the emotional turmoil puts people in a dark place, and, and it just needs to be. Something needs to be done. So it didn't really hit me until 2006 when um, I'd left the police force in 95. So th- this shooting happened. Your mate Peter was killed in 1987. 1987, And yeah. in, you say in 2006? 2006, I had a total meltdown. Um, wow. So I'd left the cops. Um, I could have, you know, I didn't take any medical payout or anything like I could have absolutely easily, but I just decided to go. Um and I was general manager of a, a company in South Melbourne. Walked out of the office, turned left to get some coffee and just froze. And the whole world fell on my shoulders. And and I remember thinking, what the hell is this? One of those serendipitous moments, my phone rang, and it was Mark, the guy who'd uh, recruited me out of the police force, mm. who basically said, hey, you going? So I'm, I'm stuffed, mate. I'm, I, I, don't, I don't know. He drove over from the other side, he drove over from Essendon to South Melbourne and uh, sat me down, calmed me down and gave me a business card and said, I've made an appointment for you to see this person tonight. So that was my my start of a journey in counselling and I realised that, you know, I went through some years of counselling and ironically I've only been formally diagnosed with PTSD about 12 months ago because I went to a number of counsellors that weren't, that were counsellors, not qualified, I guess. You need a specialist, I'm told. Yeah, absolutely. A PTSD specialist. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, so I, I'm, uh, I've been seeing this person now for, <laughs> sounds like an affair. I've been seeing this person <laughs> now for 12 months. Um, we worked out the other day and, uh, mm-hmm. and she is brilliant. She's, I'm in the best place I've been for a long, 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 long time. Wonderful. Um, she actually counseled or had counseled an uh, SAS guy who come back from Afghanistan. That's how I got her number through him. And, uh, yeah, best move I've ever made. Do you make anything of the fact that so many AFP officers, Australian Federal Police officers, have chosen to commit suicide on work premises? I, yeah, because I, I, I read it all. Um, because, it, again, it just, you know, wow, it, it's heartbreaking. I, I know that they've done it, and it's not just AFP. There have been, sadly, a couple of people in Queensland certainly some in New South Wales, it's access, it's, it's, it's the opportunity to draw the weapon out of the armoury and get it over and done with, I think. Um, right, the weapons are there at work. Normally you don't take them home. Yeah. No, no, in those days we did. Um, so 
and and it's so it's so unusual for a woman to shoot herself as well if you look at the stats mm. and there have been certainly someone I'm aware of in Queensland and certainly two or three I think female officers in, in the AFP have done it that means it's a problem it is oh, it's a problem anyway that sounds silly but but that means it's it's a major issue when I see women shoot themselves and I've never saw never seen any of that in my 20 years of policing this needs addressing you know and and the problem I see and I'm able to make the comment externally is that you, you can have all the psychologists in the world inside a police force. You can have all of the procedures to have people undertake counselling after an incident. But at the end of the day, a cop is not going to put their hand up and say they need help because their career is tarnished if they do. That's the reality of it. And, you know, a chief commissioner or a commissioner will say, no, 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 that's not how we operate. Okay, formally, sure. Informally, no. Nah. It's not just the police, by the way. I mean, it's the same in the media. Yeah. It's the same, you know, I know everyone tells us all the time, we've got to talk about mental health, guys, and everything's changed now. Yeah. Everyone's so much more open about mental health struggles. No, they're not. No, they're not. No, they're not. No. People like me are open, but there are many more still living in the shadows because they, they don't feel comfortable that they can be. And I'm at a stage of my working life and my career now that so I'm very open about it because I hope that that sets some sort of um, example or, or sends a signal to people that it's okay, you know, come and talk to me about it. And I, I, have, had, I have had some of my younger people in, in the organisation I'm in now do exactly that, um, which I think is fabulous. See, I told you he was a really nice guy. Thank you so much to the wonderful Keith Banks, whose book is called Drugs, guns and lies and it's available everywhere thank you to these wonderful patrons too ruth ketchen rachel sturtbecker kate panel jesse weedley nickel hurd candice galise leah kelly and rita potestos thank you for downloading this episode of australian true crime which is made in association with the acast creator network we'll be back next week
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.